All right. Well, if I were, if I were to talk to people who are in their teens or their 20s, many of them would probably say one of their dreams in life is just to get married. They, they just, they just want to get married. I mean, they might think they want a job or they want a car. There's some other stuff that they want. But, but oh, to just get married. May Jesus not return until I just get married. If, that, if that's you here today, uh, I want to correct you. Don't have that be your goal. Don't have just getting married be your goal, because that's way too low of a standard. If God has called you to marriage, then yearn to be a godly person and to have a godly relationship with someone else. Because I've known a lot of people who are just married, and it's very sad. They're just married and they don't have a relationship that is healthy or good. Now, I'm telling you that because we're in Genesis 15 and marriage, marriage is a covenant. And Genesis 15, we're talking about a covenant that God is reaffirming with Abram here. And in Genesis 15, God emphasizes his covenant, his promise, but you might be thinking, why does any of this matter? Who cares about this covenant? And, and, and if that is your mentality, uh, you might be thinking about this covenant like maybe teens or 20s think about marriage. It's just a thing. You know, you get to that covenant and then, of course, happily ever after, right? But what is the point of a covenant? What, what is the point of, of God here in this text, reaffirming promises. I think sometimes when people think about a covenant with God, they think, again, much like how some younger people think about marriage. They just, they just want to make sure that they're right with God, and then they can do their own thing. You know, they got God on the side, and they got everything else that they love, but they don't really commune with the Lord they don't love him. They don't have a healthy relationship with God. But Genesis 15, I think, confronts us and says, don't settle for so little. What we saw last week from Abram is that he trusted the Lord. And we see that that trust in the Lord was counted to him as righteousness. Now, by the way, just as a side note, I don't think that this was the first time that Abram trusted the Lord. Uh, I think we see from chapter 12, he trusted the Lord. Uh, but when the ancients write, like Moses is writing here, they write stories in order to, in different stories, present different types of truths for us to get and for us to understand. And here in this text, we had Melchizedek, if you remember that sermon, if you were here for that, Melchizedek, the king of peace, and Abram sac uh, gives offerings to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek serves as a mediator of sorts. Uh, between him and God. And then we have Abram believes the Lord and it's counted to him as righteousness. Now he is in a right relationship with the Lord. But now what happens after that? We have verses 7 through 21 that tell us what are the ramifications of reconciliation with God? 
being at peace with God, being declared righteous, now what? Now what? Is, is a covenant relationship with God just, just a covenant? Or what's the point of the covenant? What I, what I hope that we can see in chapter 15 is that, yes, reconciliation with God includes being declared righteous. Remember, Abram's declared righteous because of faith. Is faith a spectacular act? Is it? I mean, not, it's not a work. It's I trust you. And God counts it as though it is righteousness. Not, nothing Abram does. But reconciliation, we, we, to be reconciled with God, we must be righteous. But reconciliation with God also includes being given a new home. That's what I think we see in 7 through 21. If I go back to the marriage illustration, uh, when Adam and Eve are united together, Moses inserts a statement to the Israelites, and he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. The covenant means there's a unifying of two people in a relationship, and it means, in a sense, there's a new home. There's a new home that takes place between this husband and this wife. So, so let me ask you this. If you met someone who said that they're married and they have this wonderful relationship and they've been married for 10 years, but they've never met their spouse before, it's, only, it's all online, would you find that to be problematic? Yeah? No, we made a covenant. We made a covenant. We've just never seen each other before in person. Now that, see, that would be concerning to me as it is to you. Because I know, like, in my marriage with Tracy, um, I often yearn to just be in her presence. Um, while I'm away from her, I miss her. And, and if she's not home, if she's gone for a time, I can feel homesick, even though I'm in my house. Because Tracy is home. My spouse is my home. Now, I'm bringing all of this up because of where this covenant goes. You're right with God. To what end? To what purpose? That God, we would see God as our home. So I, I want to ask you something. Let's go back. I talked about young people maybe saying, I just want to get married. But let's, let's apply this spiritually to all of us here this morning about your relationship with God. How do you treat God? Do you want God or do you just want God's stuff? And if God gave you what you thought were blessings, but you really didn't have him, would you be content? Or would you yearn for him? Do you see God as your home? See, I think that this text actually emphasizes the supreme value of God himself. Because if Abram knows, if he, if he knows God, and he knows God is with him always, and he knows that God is good, that God is Abram's assurance, the Lord is Abram's comfort and hope, and then Abram, Abram can endure anything in life if he really knows the Lord. 
And so the main idea of this text, this sermon today, is the Lord is the believer's assurance even in the face of doubts and destruction. I mean, we read the text earlier. It seems like a pretty confusing text. Some of us, as you followed along in the text, your eyes might have glazed over and you're like, this seems quite boring here. How in the world do we get that from the text? Well, now we're going to jump right in and we're going to break this main idea up to try to see these realities in the text itself. And we're going to first focus on the Lord. What do we mean when I say, what do I mean when I say the Lord? Who is the Lord? Look at verse 7 again. And he said to him, the Lord said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Who is the Lord? If, 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 if the Lord is our assurance, then we need to actually know that he is trustworthy. So what kind of God is he? What we see in verse 7 is that he's the rescuing God. After God reaffirms the promise to Abram that you are going to have offspring, he moves on to stating to Abram that he is going to give him this land. You know, since God's punishment to Adam and Eve... God promised there was going to be the seed of the woman, the serpent crusher to come. The serpent crusher is going to reverse the curse, reconcile people back to the Lord. But again, to what end? What's the point of this? And it's to bring people back to communion with the Lord, to bring us home with him. Years ago, I remember a man by the name of Randy Alcorn, in one of his writings, he said that human beings are made for a person and a place. Jesus is that person. Heaven is that place. And that's what I think of when I look at this text. God promised the serpent crusher the offspring is going to come. And the serpent crusher is going to come through that offspring. And there is land that's really going to be home. I, I can imagine that Abram yearned for home. I mean, God told him to leave the land that he lived in all of his life. I mean, we're going we're gonna to hear from some testimonies in just a little bit of people who went to Africa, and I can imagine that some of them missed family or friends here. When I was in Africa only for a week and a half, I'm like, ah, I want to go home. Abram, he's not going back. And he's yearning for this home. But you know what? Abram even knew that this land that God was promising here, he knew that that land was just a shadow of a greater land. Because the author of Hebrews actually says this, that Abram was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abram was trusting the Lord that there is something even greater than this, and he's yearning for this. Look at what it says. He was looking, looking forward to. You ever look forward to something? There's a yearning in your heart. Abram's yearning for this. He's looking forward to that city. He's anticipating. His eyes are on the day when he's going to be home with the one who made the covenant with him. And so God has said to him, Abram, you're right with me. I've declared you righteous. 
and I'm leading you home. I also believe in this statement in verse 7. This is what the Lord is emphasizing to wandering Israelites as well. Because the Israelites are the original audience, the first audience that's reading this. The wording in verse 7 is actually almost identical to God's wording during the Exodus when he says that he brought them out of the land of Egypt, therefore serve me. Why did God do that? He, he, he would say this to prove that he is a God who saves and he is a God who is trustworthy. And he's also saying this to Israel, saying, I have a home for you. I have this land for you to live in my presence and in my glory. I've rescued you from slavery so that you can experience freedom in this covenant. And as we read this, we who are followers of Jesus Christ, we should think similarly. You know, Jesus doesn't just rescue you from your sinfulness and from the consequences of your sin just so that you can say, I've got the get out of hell free card. That's so minimal. God has rescued you to restore you to him, to reconcile you to him, to declare you righteous in his sight and to put that longing in your heart for him, to long, to yearn, to be home with him. Did you know in the New Testament, it actually says there is a crown for the people who look forward to Jesus coming? Just, just looking forward to it. That's what Abram is here. Now, Abram ought to say with this, okay, on the basis of what God has done in the past, I can be confident he's going to be faithful in the future. And that, that's the idea that God is communicating. However, at the same time, how many of you have ever experienced relationships with people that they're very trustworthy in the past, but then just something happens that, um, oh, wow, they, they, they weren't consistent? Anybody? No? You? Have you ever done that before? Yeah, all of us. So, so there... We can hear God say, look what I've done in the past. But, you know, our experience also kind of tells us that doesn't guarantee that you're going to be the same in the future. And so that's why I have, as part of the main idea, in the face of doubt. The Lord is a believer's assurance in the face of doubt. Look at verse 8. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I will possess it? How will I know that I'm going to have this land? Now, some people might want to accuse Abram of being faithless here, but I don't think that we should think that way. We're just told in verse 6 that he believes God. I don't think he's faithless. Asking questions of God doesn't necessarily mean that you're faithless. It could mean you have faith, but you're wondering how God is going to do what he says. This doesn't make any sense. Abram has been waiting for a while already. And he wants reminders. And what's beautiful is that the Lord doesn't reprimand Abram for asking questions. Isn't that phenomenal? Isn't it? God is not annoyed with Abram asking questions. Christian, I just want you to think about that too. God is not annoyed with you asking him questions. When, when you go to him and say, Lord, I don't understand. I don't get it. If you're God's child... 
God actually wants to reassure you. That's God's delight. You know, last week when Mark Buell was preaching, he just commented briefly in his sermon that this text starts off with God speaking to Abram saying, fear not. Do you know that's the most often repeated command in the entirety of Scripture? That's the most often repeated command is to fear not. He's an amazing God. He loves to reassure his children. God is not saying, Ugh, when are you going to stop being afraid? But it's fear not, child. Fear not. He keeps reassuring his children. In the face of doubt, God is Abram's assurance. In the face of doubt, God comes to us even through his word and various means of grace to remind us who he is and that he loves us. So God is Abram's assurance in the face of doubt. But we also see in this text that God is Abram's assurance in the face of destruction. And this is the longest portion of the text. Verses 9 through 16 gives us this scenario that includes a situation that is prophetic and then a dream that I believe helps to interpret, it, interpret the situation. So we're just going to read this whole section again to make sure hopefully we're on the same page. So verses 9 through 16, follow along with me in your Bibles. He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then... The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." So, being people who live in the 21st century, this sounds so weird, right? What in the world is going on? But I think Abram knew exactly what was taking place. Because in that time period, there was actually a, a certain type of covenant ceremony in the ancient world that involved killing animals, having them in pieces, and having pieces of animal on one side or the other making an aisle in between the animals. And then the two people who were part of a covenant would walk in between those animals. It's such a beautiful thing, right? I mean, why so gruesome? Well, it signified that if you didn't keep your part of the covenant, then you could expect to suffer the same fate as the animals. That's how serious this covenant is. If you don't keep it, that's what's going to happen to you. There's actually an 8th century, 8th century B.C. Assyrian text that talks about this covenant ceremony about a god and his people. And it says this, if Matalu, the god, if he sins against this treaty, so may, just as the head of this spring lamb is torn off, the head of Matalu will be torn off 
and his sons. So I believe Abram knows exactly what's going on, what God is doing here. Abram asks the question, what about this land? And God is answering with a covenant ceremony, this promise that he's making. So Abram gets all these animals, which, by the way, um, all these animals are a part of the Israelite sacrificial system. Okay, So he gets these animals, then Abram sacrifices the animals, making the aisle with the body parts, and then the birds, they're not cut in half, but they're, they're dead. And then at some point, these birds of prey come down on the carcasses. Um, and birds of prey, they were considered unclean animals. Abram drives them away. Why, why are we even talking about birds of prey coming down and Abram, ah, get out of here! Okay, well, that's a, that's a great question that I think the next part helps to clarify. The dream. Abram falls into this deep sleep. How, how many of you have ever had a nightmare? How many of you have ever had, you know, this very significant dark dream that even in your dream, you're willing yourself to wake up? Anybody ever have that? Oh, get me out of here. Get me out of here. You're dreaming. Ah! Like, there is this depth of fear. Have you ever had a dream before where it, was, it seems so real, then you wake up and you still think it happened and your brain's catching up with reality and then you, oh, phew, it's not real. I didn't murder that person. Okay. Oh, I'm not going to jail. I'm not going to jail. Um, so what we're told in this text is that Abram falls into a deep sleep and a dreadful and great darkness falls on him. I mean, he must have felt terrified. This doesn't make sense, though. Like, in some ways, this doesn't make sense. Because God is making a covenant. Why is, God, why is God making this covenant? God's making this covenant in order to comfort Abram. Being terrified doesn't sound like comfort. Yeah? But there's a purpose for this. In verse 13, the Lord says to Abram, know for certain. And in verse 8, when Abram is speaking, he's asking God, how am I going to know? And now in verse 13, God is saying, you're going to know, not just know, you're going to know for certain. And it involves this dreadful and great darkness coming on him. In the midst of this, God is giving him assurance. Abram's offspring is going to be sojourners. They're going to be afflicted for 400 years. Okay. Now, God has been reaffirming his promise to Abram. Abram's in a right relationship with God. God reaffirms the promise of the land. But then God says here, it's going to take a long time before your, your offspring gets it. Before this promise comes to fruition. How is that? comforting to Abram? How is it comforting to the Israelites who are reading this, who are wandering in the wilderness? Well, God tells Abram and his people that there's going to be destruction before there's going to be fulfillment. A nation, a nation like the unclean birds of prey coming down, the, the, the nation that's trying to destroy the covenant they can't thwart God's promise, no matter what they do. And the Israelites in Egypt, 
I think this actually can be comforting to the Israelites in Egypt because they could wonder in the midst of destruction, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, does God care? Does God know? Does God see us? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, this has all been a part of his plan since before they even existed. That ought to serve as a comfort in the midst of pain and suffering and difficulties, even in our lives, to to know that God didn't just turn around and forget about us, but that God knows. Now, and while it's going to seem and feel to Abram's offspring that God has forgotten them, God hasn't. God hasn't forgotten about Israel. He hasn't forgotten about Abram. He says of Abram, he's going to die in a good old age. And yet at the same time, Abram's not going to experience the fulfillment of the promise. At least not in his lifetime. But there's comfort. God is with him. God will bring him safely home. And God also declares this to Abram's offspring about their future. God knew the destruction and persecution they'll endure before it happened. It's all a part of his good plan. Now you could say, how is that a good plan? That doesn't sound like a good idea to allow people to go through this kind of suffering. It seems, in some ways, it seems so unnecessary. I mean, in our culture and society, we like expedience. Yeah? Uh, let, let, how can we get there the fastest with the least amount of problems? God doesn't seem to care about that so much. Look at verse 16. We're actually told at least one reason why there is this long period of time. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, the people of Israel. They'll come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What does that mean? Now, I believe the term Amorites, the term Amorites can actually refer to a very specific people group, and the term Amorites can also refer to all the people who are in Canaan. I believe here it's referring to all the people who are in Canaan. God isn't going to punish the people in Canaan until they are completely saturated in their sinfulness. Let me, let me read to you what one commentator wrote about this verse. It is not until the nations become totally saturated with iniquity that God dispossesses them. So also, he does not send the flood until the earth is fully corrupt. And he does not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah until he has satisfied himself that not even a quorum of righteous are left in the city. Israel's conquest and settlement of Canaan is based on God's absolute justice, not on naked aggression. Later, when Israel's iniquities have become full, God will drive even his elect nation from the land. Do you see this? This is really important, I think, even for the wandering Israelites in the wilderness. When God says, go destroy, God has been patient for centuries with these people. And now the iniquity is full. These people are not going to turn. They're going to continuously reject him. And it's at that point in time that God is going to use the nation of Israel to bring judgment to those nations. This commentator, he goes on to actually talk about an ancient text 
an ancient text that was written in the 1400s BC that was discovered in 1929 that documents the sins of the Amorites, detailing how the gods they worship led them to horrific violence and sexual promiscuity. So God says he's, he's going to stay with Abram's offspring. They will have the land, but there's going to be a delay. He's waiting for the people of Canaan to be saturated in their sin. <laughs> Why? We know this, this could not be because God loves sin and wants people to sin more, right? That's not why. Why? Why is God patient? Well, I think we've already found a pattern in Genesis, and we find it throughout the rest of the scriptures. This pattern continues, that God is patient in order to give people an opportunity to repent, We're told from the Apostle Peter that not only was there a flood, but Noah warned the people about the flood. He preached that this judgment was coming. We know that God offered rescue to Lot and his family from Sodom. We know that God was even very patient with the Israelites in their rebellion, calling them back to himself. See, God's intent is that there would be repentance. I think even for the Amorites, the people in the land of Canaan, he's giving them time. Even if that means Israel is going to suffer in Egypt, he's going to be just and patient and merciful. The Israelites' suffering is giving more time for people to turn. That's the kind of God we serve. Now, after this dream, we read what happens next in verses 17 through 21. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The Lord is the believer's assurance in the face of doubts. The Lord is the believer's assurance in the face of destruction. We can trust him even if we're suffering. But here, I think in these verses, 17 through 21, it really emphasizes the reality that the Lord is the believer's assurance. It's dark. All that can be seen is a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. You wake up from a dream that is dark and (gasps) what's reality? And the reality is shown to him. The smoke, the fire pot, the torch. Smoke and flames are symbolic in Israel. God revealed his glory to Moses through a fiery tree. God revealed his glory on Mount Sinai and in the tabernacle through smoke, light, and flame. And here, the fire pot and flaming torch represent God in his glory. And we're told that the Lord had made this covenant. But notice here, Abram Abram doesn't walk through. In a covenant ceremony, it's two people or two beings that walk through this. Abram doesn't. Why doesn't Abram walk through this? Because there's no way Abram can make this happen. Abram can't ensure that the offspring is going to come. Sarai 
I mean, she never had children, but now she's too old to have children. There's no way that Abram can make Sarai have a child. How can I bring the offspring? And Abram can't guarantee that the land is going to belong to him and to his offspring either. He can't ensure that they're going to make it to the city whose builder and maker is God. So, God holds himself accountable. And God goes through. And God is essentially saying to Abram, if I don't do what I say I'm going to do, then what happened to these animals can happen to me. I mean, there's nothing greater that God can swear by because he is the greatest. So God swears by himself. How is Abram going to know that this is going to be accomplished? Because God swears by himself. He's going to do it. And so God says that to Abram's offspring. He's going to give them the land. And God declares what the general area is. God speaks to all the people groups that live in that land. And he is promising that they are going to make it home. They're going to make it home. They're going to make it into a land where God is going to reveal his glory and they can fellowship and commune with him around his presence. So Abram, you can be confident. You can be confident in the Lord. In the midst of doubts and turmoil, you can be confident. Wandering Israelites, you can be confident because God made a promise on the basis of himself. You can be confident. Well, how, how should we take this as believers in Christ? Because we know more to the story of the scriptures. And this passage, I believe, clearly points to Christ. And we know that the land will be given to Abram's offspring until the serpent crusher comes. The seed of the woman. When the seed of the woman comes, he will then bring a new land whose builder and maker is God. You know, when Jesus talks to his disciples, he says, I'm going, but he says, I go to, anybody know the verse I'm talking about here? Prepare what? A place for who? You. Jesus, the Son of God, God, the Son, is building a place. And Jesus says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back for you. This is all on Jesus to do this too, right? I can't, I can't get myself there. There's no like, beam me up, right? I, I, but Jesus will get us there. There is a place. And you say, well, how, why are you making that application to us? Because God's talking to Abram and to his offspring. Well, this is truly phenomenal, Galatians. If you are Christ's, can you just read the rest of that with me? You are Abram's offspring, heirs according to promise. You too are part of the offspring. Why? Because Jesus, the offspring, if you've trusted in him, Jesus is your priest and mediator, greater than Melchizedek. And Jesus is the one who makes us righteous. Because 
Remember, only God went through those dead animals. And, and has God kept his promise, by the way? He's keeping it. He hasn't failed the promise, right? But what would happen if he doesn't keep the promise? What happens? Then he should die, right? He should be cut up. How does Jesus make us righteous? Through his death. Because Jesus did live the perfect life that none of us could ever live. And yet Jesus was torn. His body torn and cut up and bloodshed. That's what we deserve. If we walked through that, we're done. That's what we deserve. And yet Jesus took what sinners deserved in their place and then says, Come to me, all who weary and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. That Jesus says he will give wholeness to anyone who trusts in him. He, the righteous one, will give us his righteousness because he took our sin. And so, you know, my question for you, my question for you is, have you, have you trusted? Have you trusted and turned to Christ for forgiveness and mercy? And if not, why not today? Second, if you have turned to Christ, do you continually turn to him for comfort and assurance even in the midst of doubts and destruction? I say that because I think there's many people, myself included, that at times when difficulty comes up in our lives, our first question is, why, God? That's understandable. Why? But we can also then come to, I think, wrong conclusions. God is against me. God is tr punishing me for some unknown thing that I have no idea in my life. Uh, there's a, there's, because there's difficulty, we tend to think that equals God's disapproval. Do you think that's an accurate way to think? No. Jesus himself says, in this world you will have tribulation. Abram is being comforted in the reality that there's going to be problems even. But God is over all of that. And so I want to take us, even for us as believers, into a certain passage in Romans. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay, we are offspring of Abram and children of God. That's, that's beautifully encouraging. Yes? Yes? Okay. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ. Woo! Yeah! That's so good. What, what do we have to look forward to? We have, we have home to look forward to. We're heirs to look forward to what's to come, where, where the Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem coming down, and we will be in the presence of God forever and ever. That's amazing! Yeah? Okay, now, do you notice there's two do or three dots there? Do you know what that means? There's more to the verse. <laughs> Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That doesn't sound too fun. I want the verse to stop there. But just like Abram, 
And just like the followers of the Lord throughout all the centuries, and like our Savior Jesus, there is difficulty and pain in this world. Why? Why? And why does God allow this? I think for similar reasons why he allowed it for the people of Israel. That in a sense, we can say God is waiting for this world to be saturated in its sin. The Apostle Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Not everyone yet has turned who will turn. That's why we're still here. And you know what? When believers go through suffering and they lose things in this life and they still say, the Lord is good and the Lord is worthy, that speaks to the world around us. Where the world around us will then say, man, they're not living for this or that. There is someone greater that they're living for. Yeah, him, our God. So God calls us to be in this world, to reveal to the world that he is worthy. But I don't think that we'll live this way if we, if we really don't believe he's good, if we don't believe that he can be trusted. But he's made a covenant. He's made a covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. He can't go against it. He can't go against himself. So again, I want to go back to questions I said in the beginning. When you think about a relationship with God, do you just think about being saved? Oh, I'm righteous, all good, God on the side. Or is it he's leading me home? He's my vision. He's my hope. We're going to sing Be Thou My Vision in just a few moments. That's our prayer. I hope that's our prayer. Be my focus, my life. Do you know God's at work? He hasn't forgotten you. And Jesus is with you and drawn closer to us to lead us home. Truly, the Lord is the believer's assurance, even in the face of of doubts and destruction. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are kind. You are wonderful. I pray that we would firmly believe those realities about you. That our rest and trust would be in you and not in us and not in things around us. And that you would be our vision until we get home and when we are home with you for all eternity. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. With that, stand and hear these words of blessing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.